Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 6. Book of Romans, chapter 6. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read God's word. This is God's word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. If you would lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would add to our hearing of the word obedience to the word, that you would add to our obedience love, and that you would fit us to live as your people in this world. We ask for your help in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Back in the summer, Vanessa and I began to get some, some work done on our house, some renovations. And we were away on sabbatical, and we thought this would be the perfect time to get some work done. It would be the most painless way to get the work done. Have the workers come in while we're away. And the project was slated to be finished um, in August. It is now October 28th. And renovations are still occurring. And a few weeks back, while our renovation team was, uh, was at work, when we first came back, we saw it was beautiful. Like the work that they did is really, really beautiful work. It's, it's detailed, it's meticulous, it's, it's just really well done. But it's taking a real long time. And so I was ribbing our, our contractor a little bit. I said, man, I, I mean, look, I was looking forward to getting renovations done. I just, I just didn't know it was going to turn into be my Christmas gift. And he turned to me and said this, do you think I started this project without intentions to finish it? And I said, I think my preacher brain is going right now. Because as we come to our subject for this morning, we're talking about we're talking about sanctification, the, the, the transformation that God does in our lives. And many times we look at our lives and we're struggling, we're suffering, we have day in, day out with the kids, work is a grind, life in the city is challenging, 
and we look to the contractor and we say, are you ever going to finish the work? Are you ever going to complete the job in me? We wrestle with things that we wish we just didn't have to wrestle with anymore. We wrestle with the pride in our lives where we always feel like we have to prove ourselves and put ourselves above others. We wrestle with the lust in our lives, the longing for things that we don't have, with envy toward those who have things that that we don't have. And we we feel sometimes that the job is never going to get done. But God's promise to us is that he will finish the work. And in, in essence, what he's saying to us today is, do you think that I started this job without plans to finish it? And so this morning, we're going to continue through our series on salvation. Now, look, here's the deal. We started a series on the doctrine of salvation, and we have been working with this massive illustration, and it comes from our time in Colorado where we went to the Rocky Mountains, my family and I on sabbatical, and we went up into the the mountains, and we began to see that, that it was so much more magnificent than we imagined when we were down at the foot of the mountains in Boulder, Colorado. When we actually went up into the mountains, we were stunned. Every peak went to a higher peak, and it was breathtaking and shocking. And what we said was that when it comes to talking about the doctrine of salvation, if you want to understand God's rescue of people, the first thing you have to understand is that the mountain range is union with Christ. And once you go up into, once you ascend into this mountain range known as union with Christ, there are various peaks calling where God summons us to life. Regeneration, where God actually renews our dead hearts. He brings us back to life. That allows us to express faith and repentance, to turn from sin to Christ. And in that act, we are justified. That means that God declares sinful people to be righteous legally. That is our new status. And we are righteous not because of our own performance, but because the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. And our sin was credited to him, the great exchange. And God also declares us to be his children. It's called adoption. Now, we have been talking a lot about the entryway into salvation, and a lot of people, if you listen to American Christianity in the, in the 20th and 21st century, what you hear is a lot of focus on the entryway into salvation, getting people saved, you know, going out and sharing the gospel with people who are saving souls, right? The emphasis has been on getting in, and the emphasis has been so much on getting in that people don't understand what it means once you're in to actually be changed, to actually be transformed by God, that God doesn't just want to get you in. He wants to renew everything about you. He wants to change everything about your life and the way that you live and relate to him and others and the way you relate to sin. So this morning, we are going to get into the doctrine of sanctification. Doctrine is not a bad word. It's about knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and knowing how to connect that to the scriptures. That's it. So we're going to get into sanctification, the process of renewal. And we're going to look at two points. What is true and what we must do. What is true and what we must do. And I'm intentionally setting it up that way. Because many people have walked away from the Christian faith. They they have a mistaken understanding of the Christian faith. 
because they confuse the order here. They confuse the order here. They think there are these things that I have to do in order to get in. But it's actually the opposite. God does something definitive on your behalf. And that is what issues in the things that we do as Christians. It's a different thing. So let's look at our first point. What is true? Now, if you walk through this book of Romans, all right, this, this letter from Paul to a church in Rome, we have been walking through parts of this in this series. But one of the things, it's a familiar passage that everyone's familiar with. And it's Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we touched on this when we were talking about justification. God declaring people to be righteous. And one of the things that we mentioned back then is that God had a plan for the world. God has always had a plan for the world. And you know what God's plan for the world has always been? To fill the world with many replicas of himself. He, wants, he wanted to fill the world with many moral and ethical replicas of himself. That's what humanity was meant to be. That's what it meant and means to be the image of God. He wanted to see his love and his, and his likeness represented all around the world. But we know with Genesis 3, the world falls into sin through the disobedience of Adam. And at that point, the image of God is ruined. And part of the story of recovery, part of the story of rescue is that God sends his son in the image of humanity. He becomes the true image of God. And you know what God's plan B is? See plan A. God has always wanted many replicas of his moral beauty and ethical beauty through the world, doing justice, cultivating and caring for the earth. But now what we see is the fullest expression of that has come in Jesus. And so now what God is doing in the lives of people is once he brings you in, once he rescues you, once he, once he calls you into the family of faith, he declares you to be righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. He adopts you as his child. From that point on, what he wants to do is refashion you into the moral and ethical beauty of Jesus. In other words, he never gave up on his plan to fill the world with many replicas of his self. And that's what sanctification is. You can think of it like this. Uh, there was a, a sculptor back in the day. And he was asked when he was in the middle of sculpting something. He's looking at a big block. It's a big block of stone. And, they say, and, and the person asked him, how is it that you can create these beautiful masterpieces by staring at this big hunk of stone. And he said, you know, it's pretty easy. I see the image that I want and I chip away everything that isn't that image. And that's exactly what God is up to in our lives. But we have to pay attention to the way that God does it. And that's what we get in our passage for this morning. In our passage for this morning, there is a focal point. And you may have heard it as we read through the passage. But the focal point is that we have been saved by grace. And grace has a particular transforming dynamic in the lives of people who actually know grace. At the beginning of our passage, he's clearing up a misunderstanding. And here's the misunderstanding. He talks about grace. Grace, you are saved by grace and not from your own performance, not by your own works, not by your own greatness. You're saved by grace alone 
by Christ alone. And so someone might draw the conclusion, well, you know, he's talking about grace. We're saved by grace. And at the end of the passage in chapter 5, he says, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And so Paul is addressing in the beginning of chapter 6 the misconception that someone might have like this. Well, if my sin heightens the grace of God, well, then I'll just sin like a fool and make God's grace look all the greater. Now, that might sound a little ridiculous to you, but I tr trust me, it's more common thinking than you would realize. Because if, if you are prone to say, oh, it's grace, I'm just going to do my thing. Right? Treating grace as a license to do whatever you want, you are falling into the same trap that Paul is addressing here. But Paul is writing to address people's misconception of grace. And he says, listen, should we continue in sin that grace may increase? That's a rhetorical question. It's like asking a child, do you want a whooping? <laughs> and he goes on to answer the question. It's like, do you want a whooping? Of course you don't. You got to change the way you think, right? He's saying, should we continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we've been baptized into his death. Now check it out. Through the rest of the passage, what he emphasizes is union with Christ and the new identity that you take on when you are united to Christ. When you are united to Christ, you are no longer one of those who identifies as a reckless, cavalier, call-my-own-shots kind of person. You identify as someone who has been so radically loved that you long to be lovely. You've been so beautifully served that you long to serve. You have been given such immaculate peace that you long to be a peacemaker. You see, what he's laying out is the fact that when God acts upon your soul, when God works in your life, it then reorients you to God and to sin and to others. It, it absolutely relativizes your relationship to everything else. And the nearest illustration we have to this is marriage. Now, here's the deal. When you get married... You recognize that everything else has got to change. <laughs> you could never imagine a dude putting on overtures to a girl as he's about to drop to a knee and say, Girl, I want to make you one of my girls. I want to make you one of my long list of loves. What kind of over... What? That absolutely makes no sense. And in many wedding vows, there is this phrase that's given in the vow, forsaking all others. Because I realize that this union is going to change all the other relationships I have. Some relationships are going to be a shift in dynamics. Other relationships have got to end altogether. Now listen, you might have related, you might have related to money in, a, in one way when you were single. But when you get married, that changes because now you have to consider this other person to whom you are united and the way that you deal with your money. You might have went out for 2 a.m. taquito runs to 7-Eleven when you were single, 
But now you can't just up and leave without explaining. And sometimes that explanation is not going to work and you are going to be left at home eating salad. I know what I'm talking about in here. You know what I'm saying? The union changes everything. You might have had girlfriends in the past, but guess what? Those relationships are over now. You might have buddies that you hung with back in the day, but even those relationships, they, they change. What Paul is saying is when you are united to Christ, your relationship to sin changes. It is a radical breach with sin. It, when you become a friend of God, you become an enemy of sin. You cannot make friends with God and make friends with sin at the same time. Because this union, this relationship, it, it reorganizes everything. It changes everything about the way that you live. Now, here's the deal. God is interested in doing more than just getting you in the door. Now, think about marriage again. Isn't it, isn't it the worst to think about the idea that a guy would pursue a woman he would woo her and love her and buy her flowers and make her dinner. And the moment the ring goes on, he becomes a jerk and he disengages and he is emotionally distant and he's mean spirited and he doesn't love her faithfully. He doesn't serve like that. You're like, no, marriage is the beginning of love taking off all that stuff back there. That was child's play. We about to get into the grown folk stuff now. You want to love me, take out the trash. You want to love me, make some dinner. If you want to love me, you want to change some diapers, right? Love takes on a new dimension. It heightens. And the other thing that marriage helps you to see is that sanctification, this, this transformation of our lives, it's not a mechanical thing. It's always about love. It is love that changes us, and it is up into love that we are changed. We are changed by love for the purposes of love and the spreading of it around the world, even to our enemies. And that's the astonishing thing, when you are united to Christ. So look, 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 I want you to see, look at the passage. I want you to look at Paul's pastoral approach. If you want to get someone to change, what do you do? Well, we have a few tricks up our sleeve, don't we? We shame people. You know good and well, you don't got no business doing that. You ought to know better, right? You can tell I've heard this in the past, right? What's the matter with you? You know better than that. What's wrong with you, right? We shame people. We guilt people. We, we lay it on thick on them. We make people afraid. Parents, put your hands up if you've ever said something to this effect. You don't even want to know what's going to happen if I come up those stairs. <laughs> Tell the truth, shame the devil, all right? Half of y'all are like... <laughs> right, what is that? You're trying to use fear in order to inspire change. But here's the deal. Look at what Paul does. He lays up all the things that are true about your new identity. 
all the things that are true about God's ways with you and God's love for you and God's care for you and the riches with which God has loaded you up. Look at this, run through the text. These are the things that are true of you. You've been baptized into the death of Christ. You've been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. You've been set free from the slavery of sin. Believers are those who have died with Christ and will also live with Christ. These are the grand realities. What does it mean to you that God slapped an orange eviction notice on your tomb? That's good news. That's true of you. By faith alone in Christ alone. Christians are not people who have somehow ascended to a place of moral superiority over people in the world. No. Christians are those who have come to discover that they bring nothing to the table. That they got nothing that could sway God one way in order to love them, in order to like them, in order to tolerate them, in order to put up with their shenanigans. Christians are those who, got, who know they're absolutely bankrupt and that they find everything in Christ. And it's from that principle, it's from that motivation that you begin to live the changed life. Now, it's a slow process. I have a pastor friend in New York who told me this story. He, he, was, at, he was at an AA meeting, and he came to meet one man in the, in the meeting who, uh, he was formerly a henchman for the mob. And the man told the story one day about his process of change, and he was kind of telling a victory story. And he said, uh, I got on a subway, and I was wearing my mink coat. And these young punks came up and they pulled knives on me and told me to give them my mink coat. So I pulled out my pistol and shot them both in the leg. And I want to tell you, a couple months ago, I wouldn't have shot them in the leg. Progress is slow. <laughs> Do you see? God takes us from where we were. But he doesn't leave us in the place where we were. Now listen, you might look at one person, you might look at the, at the henchman for the mob and say, well, dad, you still shot somebody. It's like, well, he's not what he used to be, right? Like, and so were some of you, is what Paul says, what you formerly were. But no matter where God finds you, he begins to work you along the progress line of growth in grace, growth in, growth in faith, growth in love. And our responsibility is not to look around and judge the starting point from where people are, but to encourage them to keep on the upward trajectory of love and faith and hope. Transformation begins with knowing all the things that are true about God in the gospel and all the things that are true about you in your union with Christ. And after you know everything that is true, well then... You have what you need to do the things that you must do. Living up into the identity of one who's united to Christ. You see, there's a difference in the order. We are of a different sort of people. Do you see in the text Paul's appeal? 
He's saying, you need to rethink your entire identity. He brings it down to a point in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves. Logizomai. It's a Greek word that was used in accounting. To reckon. To count. To consider yourself. How? Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are dead to sin, Christian. You are dead dead to sin. You have a new identity. And look at the appeal. He appeals to their baptism for faith, not to their faith for baptism. That's an important distinction. He appeals to their baptism and he says, do you know who you are? You're those who have received this sign and you have grown up into this sign. And if you have this Jesus, if you've been united to Christ in reality, if you have grown up into your baptism, well, then you're, you're dead to sin. When Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. And that, that will be complete one day. But he loads them up with all that is true. The first thing you need to do, do you want to change? Do you want to be someone different? Do you, do you want to mature well, then you know what you must do. You must have a more powerful love to come in and clean house. That's the only way to change. Your heart will not remain vacant. You will fill your heart with things and you will direct your love at things. And the only way, once you recognize that some of those things are bad, like love of money is, is destructive. It ruins you. Love for recognition. It ruins you. Because you step on other people in order to get it. And if it causes you to harm other people in your pursuit of it, it's not good. It's obviously not good. Okay, so how do you get rid of that love? You need a more beautiful, powerful, compelling love to come in and overwhelm it. When you were in elementary school and you had your first boyfriend or girlfriend, I had a friend just say this at a, at a preaching conference. He said, when you had your first boyfriend or girlfriend in elementary school, and they, your first heartbreak. How did you get over that? You got a new boyfriend or girlfriend. You, you, got a, you got a new love. You got a better love. And in essence, this is, this is the idea. This is the way that it goes forward. This is the way that it goes forward. The, the life of change in the Christian life. Load up. How do you change? You must have the most beautiful, truest things said about you through union with Christ. That's how you change. Otherwise, you're just pushing the dirt around in the house to different rooms. You're not really getting rid of it. Because even if you do good things out in the neighborhood now, you do them for your own glorification. You do them for selfish gain, from bad motivations, so that people will think you're awesome. The only thing that will really get down, even to the motivational level of change, are all these things that are true of those who are united to Christ by faith alone. And once you're loaded up with what is true, now you're ready to hear about what you must do, which brings us to our second point, our second and final point. Now, look, you know what? One of the greatest problems that occurs in response to error is overcorrection, which leads you into another error. Lots of people grew up in churches and they would say that it was legalistic, okay? Okay. Maybe that's your story. 
I grew up in a church that was legalistic. I mean, they were laying it on me heavy. They were telling me all these things that I was supposed to be doing, and it were rule heavy, and I just didn't want any part of that. It made me feel bad. Okay, so the pendulum, let's just say you're right, and it was legalistic. What often happens is that the pendulum swings all the way to the other side where we absolutely disregard the changed life, and we reduce salvation to the entryway, to fire insurance, to a ticket to heaven. Now, that is an equal and opposite error. But here's the deal. Our overcorrections, now some people grew up in a context that was so willy-nilly, it was so free-for-all that the pendulum swings back and they're very heavy on morals. And they're very heavy on the rules. Now here's the deal. What we have in this text is neither legalism nor antinomianism. Legalism is, is, is being oriented to the performance of the law as a way of being right or secure with God. Antinomianism is lawlessness. Antinomos, a Greek compound word that means against the law. Okay? Antinomianisms, it's a free-for-all. Yeah, 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 God's gracious. It's like that old poet back in the day who just lived a, the most hedonistic life. And someone at the end of his life said, don't you want God to forgive you? And he says, it's God's job to forgive. And that was his conception of God. Both of these are errors. But what is the different way? What is the different way? First, you got to make it clear what the, what the different errors are saying. Legalism says, I obey God and then I'm accepted. How many of you have sensed that message at some point in your life? I obey God and then I'm accepted. Then God likes me. Then God unfolds his arms and he's like, well, okay, good enough. Come on. Right? Like the peeve security guard who doesn't really want to let you in, but I guess you got to take it. Right? That's legalism. Antinomianism says I'm accepted by God, so I don't need to obey. That is also an error. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says I'm accepted by God and now I obey. It's a difference. Legalism says, I obey God and then I'm accepted. Antinomianism says, I'm accepted by God so I don't need to obey. The gospel says, I'm accepted by God and now I obey. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you see the two things there? How do you progress? You must put something, it's, it's killing and making alive. The old school theologians called it mortification and vivification. You got to mortify, you got to kill, you got to destroy sin in your life. And you got you to bring to life the virtues of love for God and neighbor. And it's that dual action that, in, that results in your growth and grace through union with Christ. But let me, let me say a few things about what sanctification is not as I close. Most people, when they think about growing in their faith, when they think about sanctification, they reduce sanctification to education. Well, I, I, I just need to learn more theology, or I just need to go to more Bible studies, I just need to read more Bible. That's important, but mere biblical and theological knowledge does not yield sanctification, okay? Sanctification is not the way to acceptance, now, just to put a fine point on it, justification 
is what fuels sanctification. And never get the two confused. Remember, justification is the declaration of a judge over your life. Sanctification is the work of a surgeon in your, in your body, in your life. And Paul specifically mentions the body because the body is the instrument of sin. But he says, the old man has been crucified. And in the chapter before, he talks about those who were in Adam and those who were in Christ. And he says, the old man, your old identity in union with Adam, dead. You have a new identity in union with Christ, alive. It's not the way to acceptance. Those who are justified now have the opportunity to live like justified people. That's the point. That's the relationship between justification and sanctification. He wants to make you experientially what you are judicially. He wants to make you in actuality what you are legally. The Christian is legally righteous, blameless, pure, spotless. You are as beautiful as Christ is legally. In actuality, there's quite a gap between the two. And sanctification is growing up into who you are by God's declaration over your life. It's not just education. It's, it's not to be confused with justification. It's not mere activism. Because you can do stuff out there without paying close attention to the motivations in your heart. What I'm saying is this, y'all. You and I are always tempted to reduce sanctification to the one thing that we care about. If you're a theology nerd, reducing sanctification to knowing theology works in your favor. If you're, if you're someone who's out in the neighborhood, you're out in the city doing activism, it's tempting to reduce sanctification to activism. But it's the whole kit and caboodle that results from a growing awareness of your union with Christ a growing awareness of God's love for you and commitment to you in the gospel. This is what changes you. This is what motivates you. It's love. It's the story of beauty and the beast. It's love that makes us lovely. Think about marriage. Think about marriage. And the way that this relationship relativizes everything else, it changes everything else. And that is the way that union with Christ changes everything about our lives. Final note. It's much easier to decry a million sins in the culture than it is to kill one of your own sins. And we must be careful that we don't make a practice of shouting down sins out there that we're not killing in here. If you see ugly bitterness resulting in violence out there, then deal with your own ugly re resentment and bitterness. If you see self-righteousness and pride out there, be sure that you're killing the self-righteousness and pride in here. Put it to death. I'm, I'm dead to that self-justifying way of living. C.S. Lewis, I believe it was C.S. Lewis, who said something to the effect of the sins that we most resent out there are the sins that are usually most present in here. 
So if it really bugs you, it's probably because it's sitting in your own soul. So make sure you're at work. Yes, by all means, let's engage the ugly out there and let's beat back the darkness. But let's make sure we're pushing back the darkness in our own souls as well. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. You're not even responsive to sin anymore and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And let's work this out in community and faith, hope, and love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the promise that you began a work and you will finish the work. Thank you for setting us free from sin and, and that it doesn't have to have dominion over us anymore. It no longer has dominion over us. So help us not to, to give ourselves back to that old slave master called sin. Help us to live like free people in the joy of our salvation, in the joy of knowing Christ. And let us remember that this union is not just fire insurance any more than marriage is just for tax benefits. No, it's about love and growing in love. So Lord, help us to grow in love for you because of all that you have done for us in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would make us lovely and help us to walk in newness of life because we are resurrection people. And we, when Christ died at the cross, so did we. We died to sin. So Lord, help us to live in resurrection life, we ask in Jesus' name.